We've been telling each other stories for thousands of years. Narratives are even the way we make sense of the world around us and ourselves. But when it comes to business, we either dismiss stories or fail to use them wisely. In this episode, I am joined by Gabrielle Dolan, brand storytelling expert and consultant, and she explains how magnetic stories can build your brand. Welcome to the Unified Brand Podcast, brought to you by Elements Brand Management, a weekly brand building and brand strategy podcast to help you unlock your brand's potential, stand out from the competition, and create impact. Today, we're joined by Gabrielle Dolan, founder of Jargon Free Fridays, best-selling author of several books, including Real Communication, How to Be You and Lead True, and The Essential Guide to Business Storytelling, and Brand Storytelling Expert and Consultant. So great to have you on the Unified Brand Podcast, Gabrielle. It'd be good to learn more about yourself, what you do, and brand storytelling. Thanks, Chris. I'm really excited to be here talking to you all things about brand and storytelling and growth and everything else. Right. Yeah. So how did you get into sort of what you do and brand storytelling? Yeah, well, I I started my career, well, a long time ago, but I actually started in corporate Australia. I worked for one of Australia's largest banks and I actually started in technology. So I was a mainframe computer operator, which is showing my age because I'm not sure there's many companies that actually have mainframe um, computers anymore. But I progressively worked my way through the ranks and climbed into leadership positions. And I guess experienced firsthand the challenges of communicating, influencing in leadership. Some of my last few roles at the bank were in change management, which is really you're trying to communicate and influence to buy into what the change you're trying to do. And what I noticed is that uh, when I shared a story, like a personal story, it actually seemed to get the message across. People not only understood the message, but, you know, remembered it and it had an impact. And what I started to notice too was then the really good presenters, the really good speakers, the really good communicators were all sharing stories. So I left the bank, I left the corporate world about 17 years ago and have been teaching business people communicate more effectively through stories. And Chris, initially when it started, it was very much with leaders, how you share stories internally. So like, how do you communicate your company values or how do you communicate change or strategy? But more and progressively over the last few years, it was then like, well, how do we start to use this externally? And that was the basis of the last book where it was like this concept of brand storytelling. How do you then start, you know, sharing stories to not only connect and engage with your employees, but to connect and engage with your customers. So that's my backstory. That's great. So yeah, it sounds like an interesting shift there from the internal to the external with regards to storytelling. So is that process an easy one to do from the internal to the external, or is it something that you need to cultivate in a way that makes sense to the audience you're sending those stories out to? What I found and what I noticed in all my time in corporate, it was like internal communication was the job of leaders and, you know, perhaps corporate affairs played a role in that. And the external job of communicating was purely for the marketing team or and some companies would, you know, have external marketing brands. And it seemed to be really, really different. I think with the advent of social media that the communication between internal and external is blurring. So you'll see now CEOs will put something on Facebook or LinkedIn. And so by default, they are communicating both internally and externally. 
And that is where I started to notice this use of stories where it absolutely should be used internally, but it should absolutely be used externally. And so it started to blur who was responsible for that. And I think everyone plays a part, but more and more, I think the role the marketing team play and the role the actual employees play needs to come together and need to be more of a combined effort. Yeah, it's interesting because I recently put a post on LinkedIn that was more story-based actually after listening to your book and uh, it had a massive uptake in response compared to some of my previous posts just by adding the element of story. So what do you think it is about stories? Why do they resonate with us? Yeah, I experienced the same thing, Chris. I write a blog every week or most weeks and when I share a personal story, it has the more traction, the more you know people respond more, the lot more likes, the more shares, the more comments. And why that's the case is because, and I guess it's the reason why storytelling is so powerful, is that story taps into emotion. And when I say emotion, it doesn't have to be emotional. It doesn't have to be like, you know, we all get crying and teary or something, but it taps into emotion. And as humans, we are hardwired for emotion. We, you know, we think we're rational beings, but we're actually emotional beings. It's storytelling's in our DNA. It's the way we communicate. It's the way we talk. It's the way we hear. So, and because it taps into emotion. So there's sort of this, you know, I've been around in corporate for 35 years and, you know, was often told, you know, just give me the facts. Just tell me the facts. No one ever said, just tell me a story. Like no one ever said that. And we've got this like bias towards logic in business where I'm not saying you don't need logic, but we've actually thought any form of emotion is bad when the reality is in business, we're dealing with humans. We're actually trying to, you know, get people to trust us, get, we're building relationships and story taps into emotion. And that is why it's a powerful communication and influencing skill. Um, We know this in our personal life. We know this as parents, any parent, they're trying to get a serious message across to their kids. They'll tell a story But in business, we think, oh, no, no, that's not professional. So we don't use it. But the reality is we're humans. Therefore, we're emotional beings and story taps into that emotion. That's interesting. I never thought of that. But yeah, when I'm talking to my kids about something I want to get across, you do tell it in a story and you can see them processing it as a story. They're walking through the steps of the story in order to get that message, that understanding across. That's really interesting. So why are stories, apart from that side of things, but why are stories so powerful in business, what makes them so powerful for a business? Yeah, like even just getting back to the why we share stories with our kids for a moment, as um, there's a quote that says, um, experience is the best teacher, but the story's the second best teacher. I remember when, this was probably 17 years ago, we got a swimming pool and it wasn't a very big swimming pool. So the rule was you weren't allowed to jump in the pool. And instead of saying you cannot jump in the pool because it's dangerous, What I told my girls, the two kids were, my two girls were, um, when I was swimming and Auntie Allie, so Auntie Allie is my younger sister, she jumped into the pool and she jumped really close to me, but she got too close and her knee hit my teeth and smashed my front teeth and she got in trouble off Nana. And I was telling them this story and they kept going, tell me again, tell me again, tell me again. And they kept wanting to hear the story. But I only realised the power of that when they would have their friends over and they would tell them that story as a reason why we weren't allowed to jump in the pool. So I'm sitting there going, ooh, that story worked, that story worked. So 
The reality is in business, it's the same thing. If we're trying to get a really important message across and whether that's about safety or whether it's about innovation or whether it's about diversity inclusion or whatever it is, we can give all the facts in the world we like, but it's through the story people will connect with it, people will understand it, they will remember it, and then the most important thing, they will be able to retell other people without losing its meaning. And that's why it's so important in business because when you look at communicating strategy, when you look at communicating values, when you look at trying to implement change, that's what we need to get. We need to get people to understand what we're saying, remember it, and be able to retell it to other people if they need to. Yeah, I'm in a a networking group and every week we get our, um, our allotted time to say what we do and how we help and that kind of thing. And for the first couple of months, I would constantly just give facts. I'd say like, this is what we do. This is how we do it. As soon as I started adding in little stories and that was taken from other members of the group who are really good at this, I found that I would get more referrals and I got more referrals because they had something to connect to. And it took them on that little journey in their mind of what the business was about. So like when you said there about the swimming pool, I'm actually reliving that moment when you're talking about it. And I'm thinking about that. And I know now that next time I go swimming, I'm going to be thinking, I don't want to jump in because I might get close to somebody and it's already in there. I can already feel it's in there, which is amazing. Yeah. And that's um, when you talk about business growth, when you talk about referrals, you're sharing a personal story is someone else is able to retell it. And that's how you can get greater reach with your messages. You know, we talk about things going viral or whatever, but storytelling is the greatest viral thing there is besides, um, well, I was going to say besides COVID, but that's like, let's not talk about COVID. Cool. So what do you love most about helping businesses to tell their story? I think one of the things I love about the job I do is there's a couple, I mean, there's a lot of things, but when I work with clients, some of the feedback they tell me is I just didn't realize that anyone would be interested in my story. So that's the really powerful thing to say, I didn't think anyone would be interested in this because it seems like relatively just normal. Um, So that's a good thing. The other thing is I see, you know, I work with people in company, senior leaders, and they will say, I didn't think we were allowed to share stories. And, And what they're saying is, I didn't think it was professional. And I even get some people to say, it never even occurred to me to share a personal story to deliver my business message. So that's what I love about what I do is actually helping people. I mean, yes, I can show them how to do it properly and I can show them how to implement brand storytelling and I can train all their leaders up. But the thrill I get is helping them realize that this is so powerful and that they've never even thought about it before or they've thought about it, but it's almost like, I think I give them permission to do it. I give them the permission and the capability and that's what I love about what I do. Yeah, I think I felt some trepidation before sharing stories initially. I think you feel a little bit as though you shouldn't be sharing it on behalf of the business or how it ties into the business, how it reflects on it. But I think you're right. As soon as you take that step, you feel liberated in a way. Yeah, yeah. The amount is, I get sometimes emails, people, you know, whether it's three months later or three years later saying, I did your workshop, I shared this story and I just want to tell you the impact it had and what people said to me and they're almost going, this stuff really works. And I was like, yes, I know, I know, I know it really works, but I, I love the fact that they take the time to let me know. 
sort of covered a few of them, but what are sort of the biggest misconceptions that you see regarding brand storytelling and business? I think the biggest misconception I see with brand storytelling and my latest book, Magnetic Stories, is my sixth book. And it's the first one that's really had an external focus on brand storytelling. But the biggest misconception I see is that people think brand storytelling is one story. So there's a few I see. They think it's just one story and it's normally like the founder story or the origin story, like how the company started. So they think that is brand storytelling. Or they think brand storytelling is about the logo or the font or the slick corporate video or the strategy on a page. The amount of people I've had say, oh, this is our brand story. And I go, oh, can you show me your brand story? And it's the strategy on a page. And I was like, but that's not a story. So it's thinking it's one story. It's not understanding what a story is. And, you know, again, sometimes you see people go, this is our story. And I look at it and I go, it's actually a timeline. A timeline is not a story. I don't know, Chris, if you've noticed, there's a bit of a trend going on. I've probably noticed this the last few years on websites, the About Us page has changed to our story. And you know, whenever I see, oh, you know, I'm curious, whenever I see our story or my story, I get in and have a look and um, nine times out of 10, it's not a story. It's just a timeline. So some of the things that people are doing wrong, they're just, they're thinking something's a story where it's actually not a story. From that point of view, what is a story? So what constitutes a story with regards to business? Chris, when I run my training, I sort of say, what makes a story a story? And I get people to tell me. And from a very basic structural level, it has to have a beginning, middle and end. And, you know, and I know that seemed really obvious, but we all know people who tell stories without an ending, you know, don't be that person. I was just like, no, I was like, even the never ending story ended, don't be that person. And you know, that actually comes from Aristotle. So two and a half thousand years ago, Aristotle said for a story to be a story, it needs to have a beginning, middle and end, which That's the structure I like, although I'm very, very respectful of um, the First Nations people of Australia that have been telling stories for 60,000 years and they have a more circular approach to storytelling. So, uh, you know, I think they're the experts in storytelling. But I think in business, a beginning, middle and end is critical. The other thing is you need to be really clear on what's your message. So, so many people go, oh, yeah, I've got like this message, this message, this message one message per story. And the other thing, something actually specific has to happen. So like, give me something specific because too often in business, we talk in generalities and we talk in hypotheticals, which are actually not stories. And then in some way, you've got to link it to what your actual message is without sort of saying the moral of the story is. I feel like I should give you an example because we've been talking about storytelling and haven't told the story yet. Shall I give you an example of what I mean? Yeah, that'd be amazing. Yeah. So I'm going to give you one example. I love this example. This is an example. So I did some work with a department in an organization and it was the risk department. And the head of risk, her name was Rosemary. And she said, the biggest issue I have is whenever I talk about risk to the business units or, you know, people I talk about risk, they go, well, you're the risk manager, that's your job. And she said, it doesn't matter how many times I've told them that I cannot manage their risk for them. All I can do is help them manage their risk. Nothing changes. The behavior doesn't get through. She goes, you know, she goes, I've given all the logical information I can, but for some reason, the behavior is not changing. So this is the story she started to share. She said, when I was a kid, I grew up in a farm. 
And growing up on a farm, there was all these dangers we needed to be aware of, but mum would teach us what to do. So we knew what to do if we ever came across a red-back spider in the timber heap. We knew what to do if we came across, you know, we knew what to do when we came across, like when the dam had flooded and all the potential traps in the dam. And we knew what to do if we came across a snake in summer. And I remember this really, really hot day. Mum was yelling at me to get my bike from the front gate. So I ran down the path and then I just froze because in front of my bike was this massive, massive copperhead snake. But I remembered everything mum taught us to do. So I played statues and I slowly walked backwards until there was enough space between me and the snake. And I ran back to the house to tell mum. And I'm sharing this with you because it reminds me of the role we play in risk. All I can do is give you the skills, knowledge and advice. So when you come across your own copperhead snake, regardless of what that looks like, you will know what to do. So I love that example. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, Chris, and your listeners can answer these yourself. Does that help you understand the role of a risk manager better and the role you play in it? Do you think it helps you understand it? Definitely. Really powerful. That was really powerful. Yeah. So it helps you understand the message. Do you think you'd remember it? 100%. 100%. Yeah. I've literally just saved your life if you come across a snake. Now, you know what to yeah. Do. It's funny as well because you reminded me of it. When I was in Melbourne, I came across a red back randomly underneath a pool chair outside a um, where we were staying. There was like a sun lounger. And every day we laid, my wife was on the sun lounger and she'd gone for a job interview on that day. And I was at home and I lifted the pool chair up, sun lounger up, and underneath was a red back spider. And being a complete newcomer to Australia, not knowing what to do, I must have looked like a right tourist, but I had a stick in one hand and a, a rolled up newspaper in the other. And I was kind of musketeer-like trying to fend off this thing. This little spider that's about as big as that, like yes. as big as a you yes. know, dime, five yeah. cent piece. Yeah. So imagine if you had it came across a snake. Yeah. So that story <laughs> took me right back to that, but it also put mm. me in that moment of fear, but that in a way, but it heightened how much that imprinted on me, that story. So I was walking through the steps with the person in the story. I felt like I was in those shoes. Yeah. So that's what a story does. So it helps you understand the message. You're going to remember it. And if you had to, could you retell it to someone else without losing its meaning? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, even the fact that you said when I was telling you that story, you took you back to a redback spider and, and it would take people back to anything. And it's help, it helps people visualize it. So through the story, so this specific event, like something specific happened. So through that, it's helped you visualize it and it helped you feel it. And so again, you went straight back to the redback spider in Australia, but everyone would go back to a different thing. It could just be your parents telling you about stranger danger. And even if it doesn't take you back there, you've pictured it. You've actually pictured it and it's tapped into emotion. And that's what a story does. You can't fight it because you're human. It'll tap into emotion and it will help you understand it and remember it and therefore be able to retell it. Yeah, well, even with the copperhead snake, I felt like I was in that situation and I was walking back slowly. So I can still remember it now, walking back slowly until I was far enough away from the copperhead snake to be able to make a safe run and Mm. and putting your bike down, that kind of thing. So I remember that part of it and tying that to risk management as well. So how that relates to it. And yeah, that's got across what the job of that risk manager was in a far more visceral way than any sort of statistics, Mm. analytics Mm. or handouts could do. Yeah. And that's what, you know, Rosemary, the woman that shared it, I caught up with her a year later 
And she just now uses that story all the time because all that effort she had been putting into trying to explain factually why this was important, the story is what did it. And she said she would be in meetings and something would come up and the others would go, have we identified all our copperhead snakes? Mm. So the copperhead snakes became the metaphor for risk management. And she said she just couldn't believe the impact that that story had where she had tried everything else to get the message across. So that's why stories are important in business, whether you're trying to get your message across around risk management or collaboration or integrity or diversity inclusion, whatever it is, do it through a story because it'll get you the greatest impact than facts and figures and statistics and logic ever will. Yeah. So I love that. I love the fact that they created the cophead snake as kind of this marker for uh, potential risks. And you can see then how that, if you look at like mythology and stuff, how it translates into things like a trident that ends up being an icon for something that taps back into Poseidon and stuff like that, how a story creates icons and symbols that come out of it, which are then representative of that particular story and how they tie together. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of the story becomes the metaphor and how it all ties together, but it's not a metaphor. I mean, she could have just said, oh, when I was a kid, I grew up on a farm and growing up on a farm, there's all these dangers that mum taught us about. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is the role we play in risk. But it's like, that's not a story because you've got to have the specific event of the copperhead snake, which then, then becomes the metaphor. How do you create magnetic attraction for brand storytelling? So how do you create those sort of that into the story to give it that heightened attraction? Yeah. So the example I just gave then was pretty much just the leader trying to get a message across and how a story could use it. But when we're talking about brand storytelling, it's how does a company and whether this company is a one person company, an entrepreneur, a new company or a you know big multinational, how do you get your brand across? through your stories. And part of me goes back to what, what's brand in the first place. So one of my favorite definitions of brand comes from Jeff Bezos. And he says that your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. My tweak on that is that your brand are the stories people share about you when you're not in the room. Because I think ultimately what they're saying about you is that they're telling stories. So it's like, how do you then take control of that. So how do you take control of that with the things you do that generate stories, but also the stories you share? And the first place is defining what you want your brand to be because a magnetic story, and I should probably explain why I called my book Magnetic Stories, is I was looking for this, I knew a really good story. Once you heard a story, you had this like immediate attraction, like connection to it, like this immediate strong connection to it that was really hard to forget. It was really hard to pull away from. And so I sort of thought of magnetic. It's actually what happens with a magnet. It's like, bang, you're together and you've almost got to force yourself to pull away from it. So that's the concept of magnetic stories. As a little side story, my husband suggested he, you know, where I was thinking of it, I was trying to think of a name and I thought of magnetic stories and he came out the next day and goes, I've thought of the perfect name for your book. And I went, what? And he went, Teflon stories. And I went, okay, you know, that's the complete opposite of Teflon doesn't stick. And he went, oh, yeah, that's right. That's not like, so, you know. anyway, it did give me a thing is, are your stories magnetic or Teflon? But let me give you an example of what a really good magnetic story can do. 
when I was growing up, I was a bit of a tomboy. I'd be, you know, playing football, playing cricket. I love cricket. I love my BMX bike and my skateboard and I'd be playing with my brothers and cousins and I was never into dolls and I never, ever had a Barbie doll. And so in the last couple of decades when Barbies had a bit of a bad rap about being a bad role model for girls and unattainable body image, I happily went along with that story. And um, we've got two daughters who are now 17 and 20. And when they were born, there was no way known I was going to buy them a Barbie. And I think I even told people that they're not getting Barbie dolls. I was so strong against it. And in researching for the book, I came across the backstory of Barbie. Barbie was invented by one of the wife of one of the co-founders of Mattel. So Mattel make Barbie. And it was in the 1950s. And what she noticed that when her two children, so they had a daughter and a son named Ken and Barbara, and yes, Ken and Barbie are named after their two children. But what she noticed was that when they both played with their respective dolls, both of them, Ken and Barbara, imagined themselves as adults. And why Ken was encouraged to see himself as an astronaut and a firefighter and a superhero Barbie, the only thing she could see herself as was a caregiver and literally as a mother. And so she pitched this idea of a 3D doll with cloth clothing they could change to be whatever they wanted to be. And, you know, there was was a lot of reluctance initially, but she persisted. And in 1959, Barbie debuted on the New York Toy Fair and clearly the rest is history. But there's a quote from Ruth Handler that says, my whole philosophy with Barbie was that through the doll, the little girl could be whatever she wanted to be. That Barbie always represented that women have choices. So when I heard that quote, when I found that story, it completely changed my opinion of the brand Barbie. And not only changed my opinion, but will absolutely change my future buying habits. So clearly I never bought a Barbie for my daughters, but maybe any future grandkids that come along will get a Barbie. And one of the biggest feedbacks I get when people have read my book and give me feedback, normally the first thing they say is, you have completely changed my opinion about the brand Barbie. And I sort of think, what a missed opportunity, because I had to search really hard to find that story. What a missed opportunity from Mattel that that story is not front and centre on their website and that story is not on absolutely every single package of a Barbie doll because that's the power of a magnetic story. That was one of the things that when I heard it in the book, when I listened to the book, I came home, I've got two girls and uh, we've got a a five-year-old and a two-year-old and uh, I came back and told my wife that story about Barbie and it changed my view about it as well because obviously there has been a lot of bad press with it and you think, there might even be that that story isn't even known internally as well to a lot of people that are working on the brand and on the business, which is really sad when you think about that as a the people who are doing product design and stuff or thinking about the next lines coming out, that would be a really good motivator to help them guide them in what they do. Yeah, and that's a really good point too. Imagine being involved in producing the Barbie product, even like on the production line, but you know the backstory, that you know the backstory. This is all about girls having, imagining whatever they could want to be and women having choices. And imagine the difference that would make. I mean, you know, probably the vast majority of people on their production line are probably women, 
just, yeah, you're right. I've, I've never even thought about it that way before, but the difference that would make internally to the people working on the product. Definitely. Yeah. That is a really good story. And it did completely change my opinion of the brand. And again, my future buying habits with regards to my daughters. Yeah. You're sort of writing a book, Chris, you sort of hope the first bit of feedback you get is, oh my God, I love the book. You're such a good writer. It's like, no, the first bit of feedback I get is, God, you've completely changed my opinion of Barbie. It's like, okay, all right, that's good. That's kind of good in a way because it means that the point you're making with the magnetic stories proves that it works because it sticks in people's mind and they pass it on as well because I think that's really, yeah, I came back and told my wife about that. I know. But maybe I should approach Mattel. I should get a little kickback from, you know, Definitely. increasing Barbie sales or something. It's the best PR they've had for years, you know. Oh, kind of... God, I don't know. God. Maybe I, maybe I do know. I could be an influencer. <laughs> cool. So, yeah, I recently read the book and uh, you sort of mentioned why the book was named what it was. What was the catalyst for writing it? So what was the reason for writing it? It was an interesting time. It was, it was probably about two years ago. And I did start to notice that I've been doing storytelling for over like 17 years. And when I first started, people would talk about storytelling in business and seriously laugh at me. So I've sort of seen storytelling get credibility over that time. You know, when I wrote my last book, so this is my sixth book or something, which is, you know, I find it quite ironic considering I failed English in my final year of school. But anyway, the fact that I've published six books is astounding. Good editors, Chris, all I say is have very good editors. But what I started to notice is that storytelling was becoming really popular. So the things we spoke about earlier, I would see people talk about brand storytelling, saying, yes, we're doing brand storytelling. And I'd look at it and go, but that's not a story. It's a timeline or it's um, slick corporate video. That's what I saw. A lot of companies doing slick corporate videos going brand storytelling. And it was like, it's not even a story. And also thinking one story. So if we tell the story about how the company started, that's brand storytelling. And it's like going, you cannot communicate your brand with one story. It's like multiple, multiple, multiple stories and ongoing stories. And that was one of the things I saw people doing it, but doing it wrong. But then I think the real driver, the real catalyst for me was I would speak to people and who had amazing stories, but weren't sharing them and weren't sharing them because they didn't think they were relevant or people would be interested. And that's when I thought, I've got to write a book about this to hope what I give is clarity around what a story is and what it's not. Knowledge. So if you want to do it, knowledge, how to actually do it. But for all those people that are thinking my story is not relevant or important to actually inspiration to say it is, it is. I still, Chris, I'll share this with you. I still remember distinctly, I was at an event probably about three years ago and I was the keynote speaker and they had a dinner afterwards. So I was sitting down talking to a couple of people and one of the people there told me, you know, I said, oh, what do you do? And she goes, oh, I own a few childcare centres. And I went, oh, right. Well, that's interesting. How did you get into that? And she goes, well, I actually used to be a dentist. I was like, oh, so how did you go from being a dentist to owning childcare centres? And she told me that, you know, her and her husband had struggled to get pregnant. It took them about 10 years to get pregnant and they eventually did. And when she went to go back to work, she was trying to find a childcare centre for her son. And I think because the fact that they had tried so hard to get pregnant, that clearly this was the most precious thing in their life. 
And she said to me, every childcare centre I went into, I just thought, my son wouldn't love this. He wouldn't love it. And she goes, I just decided I wasn't going to put him in a place that he wouldn't love. And she goes, but I couldn't find any that he would love. So I decided to buy one and I bought one and turned it into a place that he would love. And then I bought another one and turned that into a place that he would love. And she goes, and every single decision we make is based on whether he would love this or not. And I remember looking at her and said, please tell me that story's on your website. And she went, oh, no, we use it internally, but wouldn't use it externally. And I just said, if I was looking for a place to send my kid and I came across your website and read that story, I would just say, sign me up. So she just didn't think that story was appropriate to share externally. It's like such a missed opportunity. Yeah, that's an amazing story. And like you said, the amount of care that you know that your child would have if you went somewhere like that and the amount of fun they'd have just by yeah. hearing that story, you know, that someone was that determined to create somewhere that was perfect and allowed their child to sort of enjoy it. You'd love mm. to, you'd love to send your child there, definitely. Yeah, because what that story does, it taps into the real fear of any parent sending their kid to childcare. Like not only will they be okay here or safe here and happy here, but what they were saying is they would love it here. And it was like, so it just alleviates any fear or any concerns any parent would have with um, leaving their kid at childcare centre. Yeah, definitely. It is one of those fears. You, even with schools, it's the same thing with schools. When you, you take them to schools and you want to find the right one, the one that you think they're going to be happiest in. So definitely a story like that would be wonders for that lady and, and her business. Yeah. And I think ultimately then when you talk about what stories do you share, it's like, first of all, what do you want to be known for as a brand? But in this story, without her even realising it, she was the story was tapping into the major concerns of her clients or potential clients without her even realising it. So you mentioned those kind of slick corporate videos and how they people think they're brand storytelling and they put them together and they're sort of, they're very easy to spot when you see them and you know what's going to happen and that kind of thing. Is there a way to do something like that that is more of a story and actually still has that corporate edge that comes across more personably, I guess? So the answer is yes. So there absolutely is a way to do those. And I, and I shouldn't say you can have a slick corporate video that is actually still good and still a story. My hesitation with that is people think it starts and stops there. So we've done the slick corporate video. So we've done brand. So they go, we have done brand storytelling. And you go, right. well, that's just the start of it. That's just the start of it. So yes, you can absolutely do it. Chris, what I noticed though, is when I was researching for this book, and I, I had so much fun researching for this book because I got to speak to so many amazing companies from all around the world. And I went out, like I went out to, you know, huge amount of people in, you know, marketing and comms, and was looking for examples. And the amount of correspondence I got back to say, you should check out this company because they're doing really good things with storytelling. And they'd send me links to these videos. Some of them were those corporate videos and they'd go, they're doing really good stuff with storytelling. And I would watch the video and go, where's the story? I was waiting for the story that's not to start. I had so many other people going, oh, this company's doing really good stories around their company values, which I love. Most part of my job is going in and teaching leaders in companies how to communicate their values through personal stories. So they've done videos. So I'd get and look at all the videos and all the videos were of people 
talking about what company values meant to them, but no one was sharing a story. So you could have a company value of respect and they go, oh, that means to me, you know, listening to everyone. And it was like it was a video of bullet points. That's all it was. And there was no story. And even though it was beautifully shot and genuine and authentic, it was just not very effective at all. And in fact, quite boring a lot of the times. So um, there's a place for those good corporate videos. And I have seen some good ones, but brand storytelling doesn't end there, doesn't start and end there. Yeah, that's interesting because I know what you mean about those sort of bullet point style videos. And actually, you have a YouTube channel. And in that, we do videos on that. And uh, one of the things I've been trying to do recently is to get more of a narrative into those videos. So is there a kind of, obviously you've got beginning, middle and end, but is there any sort of other tips with regards to a structure to creating a narrative that can work across a lot of different types of information? Yeah, so be very clear on the one single message. And it's also be succinct. Like if you're going to tell a story, well, I think in business and even in personal, people will get to the point where they're going to get to the point. The moment anyone's thinking gets to the point, you are losing them. So how do you just do it really succinctly. So my guide is about one to two minutes. I remember I did some work. I was sort of mentoring this senior exec and I was just mentoring her on a whole heap of things around communication and presentation and stuff like that. But it got to the point where the company she worked for were rolling out new values. And so they had five values and they were asking each of the executives to record a three-minute video on what the value meant to them. And as soon as she told me this, I'm thinking, I know what's going to end up. They're just going to be rolling out bullet points about what the values mean to her. And I said, so do you want to tell a story? She did. And we worked with it. And she actually spent two of the three minutes sharing a personal story around this value. The value was really cool. It was called um, To the Moon and Back. It was about like courage and taking a risk. And so I worked with her and shared a story. And she was actually initially pretty reluctant because she said, no one else is telling the story. It's just me. I'm the only one that's telling the story. And I go, good. And I, you know, encouraged her to do it. And I think she was still a bit anxious, but she did it. The feedback that she got, like she just says, the feedback was amazing that people are going, I never knew that. So first of all, I never knew that about you. I never realized that about you and that got that message across better. So yeah, you can still do videos about your company values, but my big philosophy is that you can't communicate company values without the leaders sharing personal stories about what it means to them. And what I mean by personal stories is a story that's got nothing to do with work. That's what I mean. What's a personal story? Yeah. That's got me thinking about uh, reviewing our company values, I think, and trying to work out what the stories are behind them. Because I, I think you're right. There's always the reason you choose those values or the reason they're in place is because they mean something to you. And it yeah. isn't to do with business. It's something deeper. Yeah. And Chris, a lot of the times when I do this work, I'll be working with like the executive leadership team. And one of the first things I do is go, okay, so one of your company's values is integrity. Tell me what that means to you personally. And they'll go, it means respect. Okay, okay, but what else does it mean? It means um, you do what you're going to say. Okay? What else does it mean? And then they go, hmm, I'm not sure. You've put me on the spot here. I haven't really thought about it this much before. And that 90% of the time that happens after 20 seconds, senior leaders, executive leaders are saying, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it this much before. But these are the company values that they're meant to be 
role modeling and they're meant to be communicating and they're meant to be embedding across the organization. But the vast majority of the time, they haven't spent any amount of time thinking about what they mean to them personally. Yeah, that's really interesting. Definitely. Do you want me to give you an example? Yeah, you can. I feel like we need to give lots of examples. Yeah, definitely. No, I was just, I was off in my head then. I was trying to think, okay, I was tying the values to things and I was, uh, yeah, I was off thinking about it then. You got me thinking. Yeah, yeah, cool. So work for the company, one of their values was integrity, which, you know, a lot of companies have that same, you know, integrity, doing the right thing, whatever it is. Her name was Anne. This is what I do. I take people through the process. So integrity, what does it mean to you? She goes, oh, it means honesty, telling the truth. Okay, what else does it mean to you? means if you say you're going to do something, do it right. What else does it mean to you? And she sort of went, you know what it really means to me? It means doing the right thing all the time. She goes, I think we're pretty good at doing the right thing when it suits us. Not so great at doing it when it doesn't suit us. She goes, it's a little bit like that saying, do the right thing even if no one's watching. Okay. Okay. So then I take them through the process of uh, how they can find stories in their personal life that demonstrates this. Either they've done it or they haven't done it, or they've seen someone else do it, or, you know, so I take them through a whole process of how do you actually find those personal stories. So this is the story she came up with, and this is the story she still shares to this day. She said, in the early 60s, my dad was a professional swimmer, and he reached the point in his career where he actually tried out for the National Swim Squad. And on the day of the meet, he was winning his race, and then he got to the end, and he did the tumble turn, and he slightly misjudged, so he missed the wall. Now, this was in the early 60s, so it was well before census. They had judges at the end of the pool, but with all that splashing and kicking, he knew they wouldn't know if he missed the wall or not. So he had to make a split-second decision. Does he go back and touch the wall or does he just keep swimming? And he decided to go back and touch the wall. Now, you don't really recover from a race when you have to do that, and he didn't. And so he never placed and he never, ever made the National Swim Squad. And... I would often ask dad, do you regret going back and touching the wall? And he would said, I've never regretted that because if I didn't go back and touch the wall, I would have to spend the rest of my life knowing I did the wrong thing. And I'm sharing this with you because it reminds me of our value integrity. It's only a matter of time before we will come across our own go back and touch the wall moment. And I invite you to consider what my dad would do. So imagine working for a leader and they shared that with you. Imagine what that story would do for you. Yeah, that's really powerful. That's amazing. Again, you're transported to that place. You're put in that position yourself emotionally and, and what you would do. You ask yourself that question whilst the story's going on. Yeah. And Anna said, like Anna said, that, you know, every single person that comes and works for her, she shares that story with them because she goes that meetings will happen, you know, whether we do, do we do A or B? And people will start deciding, oh, well, you know, technically we don't have to do A, legally we're not obliged to do A. And then someone will go, this is our go back and touch the wall moment. What's the right thing to do? And they go, yeah, okay, A is clearly the right thing to do. So, you know, that's values embedded like too often we try to communicate our values by just saying what they are and explaining logically what they are. But I think until we share a personal story, we don't really, really connect and engage with them. That's amazing for uh, developing company culture. So having that idea of the copperhead snake or the going back and touching the wall, you have these markers, these things that people can relate to, which then replays that story. It's like a, a freeze frame that you can then press play on that replays that story inside them to get them thinking again about so they're living, literally living those values. 
Yeah. And Chris, it's what you said. It is these stories become like the cornerstone of the culture and whether it's the culture of an entire organization or whether it's just the culture of your team. So, you know, Anne has left companies twice since that, but, you know, she goes, it's her value, whether it's a company value or not, it's her value. So she still shares that story. And as you said, it becomes like that memory point where we go, this is our go back and touch the wall moment have we identified all our copperhead snakes? So you don't even need to repeat the story. As long as everyone's heard it, they're all going, oh yeah, copperhead snakes, or go back and touch the wall moment. They all go straight back to that. This is the right thing to do. Yeah, definitely. That's amazing. Every time I hear copperhead snake, now I'm just going to remember that story. It's going to come flooding <laughs> back. And if you ever get back to Australia, you now, you know, don't worry about the redback spiders. You could have just literally walked away. You could have just flicked him off. But yeah, if you come across a snake now, you know what to do. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So in your book, you talk about five types of story that every business should tell. Could you sort of go over those sort of types of stories that you think every business should tell? Yeah. So like I said before, the reason I wrote the book is I saw people thinking, oh, it's just one story. And in my head, I knew it was more than one story, but I didn't know how many stories or what types of stories. So there was always a section in my book that had the X number of stories. And during the research, and like I said, I had so much fun researching for this book. I got to speak to like so many companies from around the world. It was amazing. The story sort of fell into five categories and they all start with C. So I do like a nice palette. So the first one is the creation story. And that is either the creation of the company or the creation of a product. So the Barbie story, for example, is a typical example of a creation of a product. It wasn't why Mattel started. I'm sure they've got their own story there. So it's either how the story, the company started or how a product or service started. So that's your creation story. The culture stories, so culture stories, these are stories about your company values. So for example, this go back and touch the wall moment is an example of a culture story. So if one of our values is integrity, this is one of our culture stories and we'll share that story. But you know, if you've got 10 leaders in your company, they all need to have their own version of that. So it's all sharing that personal stories. The other one is customer stories. So how do you share stories of your customers? But again, it's not about customer testimonials. It's making the customer the hero of the story. To give you a really, really quick example, one of the great companies I interviewed was Columbia Restaurants in Florida. They're the oldest restaurant in Florida. They're a fifth generational company. They do amazing stuff with stories, like amazing, amazing stuff with stories. A great example of a customer story is last year on Valentine's Day, they put on their social media post a story about a couple that had celebrated their wedding anniversary at Columbia restaurants for the last 72 years, like 72 years. And the story goes that on their first wedding anniversary, they came to the Columbia restaurant And on their second wedding anniversary, they came back and coincidentally got sat at the same table. For the next 70 years, Columbia Restaurant had reserved that table for them every single year and they had come back every single year. So they just put that out on Valentine's Day saying celebration of love and happy Valentine's Day to all the love hearts out there. And so it was all about the customer. But can you see by default you're going, what an amazing restaurant. 
that yeah. like so it's making the customer the hero but there's still a you know a glowing effect that's a great example of a customer story the other types of story are community stories so Again, what are you as a company doing in the community? But again, this is going beyond your corporate responsibility stuff. You might have employees that are doing really cool things in the community. So you might have an employees that are volunteering their time, you know, at a surf life saving club or volunteering their time visiting old people's homes. Make them the heroes because by default, your customers will go, you know, you've got pretty cool employees. And if your employees are working for you, you're a pretty cool company. So it's this ongoing effect. And then the final one is challenge. So how have you responded to challenges and talk about how you've done that? And that would normally then tie into your culture and your values. My advice is don't get too hung up on, is this a culture story or is it a challenge story? The reality is it could be both. The point of having those five different types of stories is find them try to find all of those. So we're moving beyond just the creation story, which is normally where most companies stop. Yeah, that's amazing that you've got those other four stories people don't really know about as much and actually provide a a really well-rounded experience for the audience and the customer to understand who you are, Mm. what you stand for, what you believe in. And also, like you said there, the extensions, the employees and the customers, but in story format is a really interesting one, I think, because especially the employee one where it's an extension of your company, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because every single employee is an extension of your brand. I run a practice and I literally, there's me and I have a full-time executive assistant and I have got under no illusion that she is an extension of my brand. She interacts with my customers. She's normally the first point of call and she is an extension of my brand. If I was going to get rid of her for anything, get rid of anyone, is that they're not demonstrating my brand and they're not in line with how I operate and what I want to do. And whether you're a company of two or 20 or 20,000, Every single employee is an extension of your brand and they should be aware of how they're contributing to that or not. So what are some top tips that you can give the listeners for developing those stories, finding those stories? What what are some tips you can give? I would say, and regardless of the size, like I said, you could be a one-person entrepreneur, two-person like me or whatever. The first thing is be really clear what you want to be known for. So do you want to be known for innovation? Do you want to be known for risk-taking? Do you want to be known as a reliable pair of hands? What do you want to be known for as in your values? I'm not talking about your products or services. Yes, you want to be known for those as well, but I'm talking about your values, which is your brand. I then think you need to educate your employees on the power of storytelling and what they can do to create those stories. So if you want to be known for exceptional customer service, You need to be finding stories around exceptional customer service, but you also need to be empowering your employees to deliver exceptional customer service. So define what you want to be known for, educate your people. And then I think it's this cyclical thing of how do you capture those stories? How do you communicate them? So how do you get them out there and get them out there multiple ways? And then also how do you create them? So like this is living your values. So like I said, if you want to be known for exceptional customer service, what are you doing tomorrow that's going to deliver exceptional customer service? So just find ways to do that. I mean, 
Now, I'll give you a really quick example. You know, one of my brands is around authenticity, but I also want to be known as generous. I like, I feel I am generous with my time. I had a, a long-term client today ring me and ask, they wanted to buy four books. So it's a long-term client and they want to buy four books from me. And it was like, please, you're not buying them. I'm just giving them to you. It's just like, but it's looking for opportunity. So if I want to be known as being generous, there's an opportunity. I'm going to take it. I'm not going to bother sending them an invoice for $100 and just give it to them. They're massive supporters and good clients. So why not? Yeah, definitely. And then it's also too, yes, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do it genuinely, authentically. But, you know, potentially she's going to be talking to other people who go, oh, it's amazing. They gave me books. And it was like, I'm not doing it for that reason. But, you know, that's potentially might be the outcome or the additional outcome. So it's finding ways to live and breathe your brand. I really like that because I think once you, like you said, you found out what you want to be known for, you have those values and you have those things and those opportunities, then it becomes, like you said, cyclical because there's an opportunity there for you to live out that value. But that also creates the story that you shared now which ends mm. up reiterating that message as well, secondhand from the initial event. So it's quite interesting how that can flow into each other and create that cycle. Yeah, there's an amazing story. And I, I reckon I heard about this about 20 years ago, but I actually did put it in the book. It was around Nordstrom. So Nordstrom in America, a known, well, you know, had a reputation for exceptional customer service. And it's a story about, and this is in 1975, right? So I don't know what, 46 years ago, that um, someone had bought tyres from a tyre shop and then went to get an exchange. And by the time they came back to the, get the exchange, the tyre shop had closed down and there was a brand new Nordstrom store in its place. And they came in and wanted a refund for tyres. And the shop assistant, first of all, they didn't sell the tyres to them. Nordstrom don't even sell tyres, but the shop assistant gave them a full refund and if you Google Nordstrom tire service story, there is like, I think the last time I did it, it was like 7 million like references and, and people are still talking about it 46 years later. It's in my book 46 years later. Now that person doing that didn't do it because I'm going to create a story. They did it because they were living their values. And when you live your values, stories will be created and you know you have no control over that but I tell you what if you don't live your values stories will be created and those stories will be shared a hell of a lot easier and faster than the stories of you living your values so you make a choice every day do we live our values or we don't deliver our values and you sort of think well if you know what you want to be known for and if it's who you are then take the opportunity to live your values yeah, definitely. That's a great story. That's a really good example of a company, like you said, just embodying what they stand for. I was going to ask you, I was going to say, so have you seen any businesses recently that you think have been successful with their brand storytelling? But I feel like the Nordstrom example is a really good one. But are there any others that you've seen recently that kind of do this, do a similar thing or have a great story they're telling? Yeah, I've been really attracted to some of the really new startup companies that have just been doing things really different, being really authentic and genuine. And just, you know, you can see it not only in the copy on their website that's really funny and authentic. So it'd be pretty hard to pull out a few as like, who gives a crap toilet paper was an Australian. And just the fact that the company's called Who Gives a Crap is cool. And even I've been working with Coles, which is a, you know, large uh, supermarket chain in Australia. 
and I've been doing work with them, but I've just started noticing on LinkedIn, they're doing some really cool employee stories. So they're celebrating their employees and it could just be this employees work with us for 35 years, but they're putting that stuff out publicly on LinkedIn. And I never saw that a year ago. So there's a few companies out there doing some cool things. Cool. So um, where can the listeners find out a little bit more about yourself, about your book, Magnetic Stories, and anything else that you're doing currently? Where's the best place to find you? Oh, look, the best place, I mean, I'm, I'm on all the socials, so Instagram, but uh, LinkedIn, LinkedIn's probably the best one, but also on my website, so gabrieldolan.com. What I do have on my website is a seven-day storytelling starter kit. So it's free. And it is what it sort of says. It lasts for seven days and it will get you started on storytelling. So it will help you start to think about where you could find your stories, where you could share them. It's just you sign up, you get an email from me one day a week, one day for seven days um, containing a really short video and it'll get you started. But um, And, you know, on the website, there's all my latest books and workshops and stuff like that. Cool. I'll put all those details in the show notes. And also I'm going to head over there and sign up as well. That sounds really good. And I encourage all the listeners to do so as well. Because yeah, it's been amazing. It's been really good having you on. Really interesting conversation. And uh, yeah, just thanks very much. Thanks, Chris. I've really enjoyed it. Cool. We've just put together a weekly brand tip video series, which is designed to help you to unlock your brand's potential and stand out from the competition. And if you're interested, if you just go to elements, brand, management, or one word, .co.uk forward slash weekly hyphen brand hyphen tips. Sign up and you'll be delivered a three to five minute video a week straight to your inbox. I'll put a link in the show notes if you're interested. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to receive more, you can subscribe in all the usual places. We're talking iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Please, if you get a chance, rate and review. It helps the podcast to kind of get a bit more visibility and allows us to keep on producing these podcasts. Have a great week. Catch up soon. Keep those brands unified.